You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. The first commercial during this year's Super Bowl was set in the Garden of Eden. It featured Adam and Eve, covered by strategically placed shrubbery, acting in a very silly and melodramatic way as they acted out this scene, the, the eating of the, from the forbidden tree. A bunch of naked jokes then followed, and ultimately a talking chipmunk appears and promises that everything will be fixed if they just eat an avocado from Mexico. Now, this reflects the world's perspective about humanity's fall in the garden. It's a big joke. It's something comically absurd. It's an opportunity to laugh at God and the Bible. But friends, this is blasphemy. Because the fall of man is not a comedy sketch. It is a tragedy beyond comparison. It has birthed every horror that has beset our world, our human race, and our lives. In 1931, in the rainy season in China, the two main rivers overflowed and four million people died. Why do disasters like that happen? Because of the fall. In the 20th century, more than 300 million people died from smallpox. Hundreds of millions more were scarred and blinded. Why do epidemics like that happen? Because of the fall. Every sin, every war, illness, birth defect, every calamity in our world happens because man sinned in the garden and plunged creation into chaos. Humanity's fall is a catastrophe of horrific proportions. The appropriate response is not laughter, it is sorrow. And today we're going to consider this catastrophe as we come to Genesis chapter 3. This morning we'll consider three points. First, humanity's rebellion against God. Second, the consequences of humanity's rebellion. And third, God's provision of hope despite our rebellion. We begin with our first point, humanity's rebellion against God. After creation was finished, Genesis 1.31 says it was very good. And again, this word good in Hebrew is tov. It means something reflects God's good character and design. And that was creation. The land, the seas, the skies all reflected God's intent. All life coexisted in peaceful obedience to God. And Adam and Eve, God's deputies, maintained and guarded the Garden of Eden, the first temple where God uniquely manifested His presence on earth. Everything was as it should be. But now we come to chapter 3 and we meet someone new. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We learn two things about this serpent. First, he is crafty. Uh, The Hebrew word here is almost identical to the word translated naked in chapter 2, verse 25. So while the serpent seemed to be like Adam and Eve, he seemed to be just one more part of God's good, innocent creation, in fact, there was a difference between him and other life forms. This serpent lacks the innocence that everything else has, and he possesses a cunning that everything else lacks. Now, second... We learn here that while this serpent is different from the rest of creation, he is still a created being. Some worldviews teach the idea that there is a good God and an evil God and that they stand in equality. That is not what is taught here. The serpent is not God's equal. He is not a God. He is a created being. And yet, though he is created, his cunning does show that he's different than everything else. What accounts for this difference? The answer has to do with who this serpent really is. Yes, he's a real animal, but he's more than that. 
He is empowered or possessed by something alien to the material universe. And we learn this in the book of Revelation, in chapter 12 and chapter 20, which both identify that ancient serpent as being the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Satan is real. He is an immensely powerful fallen angel who wars against God. And the Lord Jesus tells us this about Satan in John 8:44. He was a murderer from the beginning and he is a liar and the father of lies. And this satanic serpent now enters the garden and approaches the first humans. Now verse 6 indicates that Adam and Eve were together. And now the serpent chats them up. Look at verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually or really say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now Moses doesn't comment on the fact that an animal is talking to a person here. So it's impossible for us to know whether this animal-human communication was normal in Eden or whether this was some supernatural wonder performed by Satan. But what the serpent says demonstrates his cunning. Because what he does here is he plants an idea in the minds of the humans. A warped view of God. In the Hebrew text, the first word out of his mouth is, Really? He's feigning shock. And what does he say he's shocked by? The restrictiveness of God which he portrays by misstating God's word to Adam. He suggests that God has restricted all of the trees of the garden. Now, of course, in chapter 2, verse 17, God had not restricted all of the trees of the garden. On the contrary, God said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden except the one forbidden tree. But the serpent's framing begins to paint a picture of God through this false lens suggesting that God is a God who only ever says no, who is not generous, who withholds what is good from people. How do Adam and Eve respond? Well, in chapter 2, verse 15, God had charged Adam to work and keep the garden, to maintain and guard it. Guard it against what? Against this. Against a satanic incursion into the garden causing chaos. Adam was to protect the garden, and Eve was to help him. At this point, Adam or Eve or both of them should have asserted themselves and driven the serpent out or stomped on its lying head. But they don't do it. Instead, they engage with the serpent's lies. And Adam, who had been personally tasked with this guardianship by God, is content to stand idly by and allow his wife to speak for him. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. On one hand, Eve's response isn't so bad. She corrects the serpent's lie. She points out that God had given them access to all of these trees in the garden, that God had only forbidden the one tree. But Eve says some things here that signal trouble. First, she slightly misquotes God. In chapter 2, verse 16, God said, You may eat from every tree of the garden. But here as she quotes him, she leaves out the word every. Now you might say, well, man, that's nitpicking. Maybe. But it's in line with this perspective that the serpent is pushing on her that God is not generous. And so here she fails to cite the full extent of God's generous, abundant provision. Second, Eve adds to what God has said. God decreed death for eating from the forbidden tree. But here Eve says that God decreed death for even touching it. Eve is presenting God as being more restrictive than he really was. See, Eve's words show that the serpent's lie has begun to gain a foothold. She's starting to see God as less than he really is and more as the serpent is falsely presenting him to be. Now again, where is Adam? As the serpent and Eve debate God's word, his silence is conspicuous. 
Especially since Adam is the one who had actually heard the words from God that they're discussing. But as Eve starts to waffle, what does Adam do? Does he stand up for God? Does he help his wife? Does he fight the lying snake? He was the one tasked with subduing the animals. Adam is present, but he has become a non-entity. An entirely passive observer to a situation that required his involvement and leadership. And as the serpent sees Adam's passivity and Eve's confusion, now he tries something even more daring. Now he just flatly denies God's word. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here we see the father of lies at work. First, he lies by denying God's judgment. D.A. Carson has pointed out the first doctrine ever denied was the doctrine of judgment. And this doctrine is still often denied today. And there's a reason for that. Because denying or softening the truth of divine judgment makes it easier to succumb to temptation. Because the fear of the Lord's justice stays our hand from doing evil. But once we minimize that justice, once we start to say, oh, it's not real, or it's not really going to fall on me, then it's just one little step left until it's sin. It makes it easy, doesn't it? Second, he lies by suggesting that God is withholding something great from Adam and Eve. He appeals to their pride. He's basically saying this. God is holding you back. He knows you could be more than you are. You could decide for yourself what you're going to be and how you're going to live. But he doesn't want you to. But this tree will unlock your potential. It will make you something more. It will make you like God. We see here the incredible subtlety of Satan. Because in one sense, as we read the rest of this chapter, we discover that what the serpent says has just a shade of truth to it. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they did not immediately drop dead. Genesis 5 says Adam died at the age of 930. The serpent says, when you eat, your eyes will be open. And in verse 7, it says their eyes were opened. The serpent says, you will be like God. And verse 22, God says, God himself says, the man has become like one of us. So in one sense, what the serpent said was true. But in another, much more significant sense, what he said was a horrible lie. Because whatever truths are found in his words are half-truths presented in a profoundly false light. Well, Adam and Eve might not have dropped dead immediately upon eating. We're going to see in a minute. In a very real sense, as soon as they ate, they died. And yes, after they ate, their eyes were opened and they became like God, the text says. But this did not happen in the way the serpent led them to believe it would happen. They did not have the positive experience they were anticipating. Rather, they got something tragically horrible and ruinous. But Eve is totally deceived by these lies. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and we'll stop there. Eve looks at the forbidden tree, and it doesn't seem quite so hazardous anymore. Now it's inviting. Because it appeals to her along the lines described in 1 John 2.16. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the, eyed, of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. John identifies three categories of temptation. That which appeals to the senses generally, that which appeals to the eyes specifically, and that which appeals to pride, which offers us the good life. And Eve looks at the tree and experiences all three of these. The fruit looked delicious, it appealed to the flesh. The fruit was beautiful, it appealed to the eyes. And this idea that she would become godlike appealed to her pride, that she would be more than what she was, that she would live her best life now. And what is tragic here, so tragic, is that this temptation has caused Eve to totally lose her perspective. 
Because Genesis 2.9 says that God caused the garden to have every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. If she wanted delicious fruit, she could have gotten it from any other tree in the garden. If she wanted beautiful fruit, she just had to look around. But instead of seeing the abundance and sufficiency and goodness of what God had provided for her, she gets tunnel vision. She can only see the appeal of what God has forbidden. And that's how temptation works. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James explains temptation by using two terms that come from the world of hunting and fishing. He says temptation entices. The Greek word is the word used to describe putting bait in a trap, something that would attract an animal into a hazardous position. And he says that temptation lures, and this is the Greek word used for reeling in a fish. And that's how temptation works. It's put there like something we want, and we're drawn to it. We know we shouldn't be. Maybe we're reluctant at first. We sniff about it as a curious animal, wondering what is this food doing here that seems out of place that looks so good. We think about it. We start craving it. Perhaps like a hooked fish, we put up a little fight. But eventually, we decide to take it, and the trap closes. We're ensnared, and now we're being reeled in. It was just bait. That's how temptation works. We see only the false promise and never the downside until it's too late. That's how it is for us, because that's how it was for our ancestor Eve. But as she is mesmerized by the tree, again, where is Adam? The serpent is slandering God. Eve is staring intently at the forbidden tree and stretching out her hand. And he does nothing. So verse 6 says, she took of its fruit and ate. She rebels. She does what God has forbidden. Now what does Adam do? His wife has joined the serpent's rebellion, but he is God's deputy. Is he going to enforce God's word? Is he going to at least ask God for help? Nope. Verse 6, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve offers the fruit to Adam, and he eats without objection. He follows his wife's leadership, and the disorder of sin enters the world. In creation, we saw God's design. God is over humanity, the husband is over the wife, and humanity is over the animals. But here... An animal leads a wife who leads her husband who disregards God. It is the exact reversal of God's design. This is the exact opposite of what is tov, what is good. And understand, this is about a lot more than just eating some fruit. This is God's temple. And in this holy place, man exalts himself against God and says, I will take your place. I know better than you what is right for me. What is right is transgression and what is wrong is your word. That's not a triviality. That is high treason. That is an attempted coup. And friends, that's what all our sin is. Don't we trivialize it? Oh, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Sin is rebellion. It is a desire to overthrow God's good order by substituting our judgment for His. God and His infinite wisdom and knowledge is uniquely qualified to tell us what is good and evil. But we are sinners, and that means each of us desires earnestly to sit in God's seat, to put His crown on our heads, to say in our hearts, I am and there is no other to reject his decision-making and pronounce for ourselves what is right and wrong. And friends, every sin does that. From murder to the smallest white lie, it's all taking from the forbidden tree. It's all redefining good and evil in line with our own whims. It's all self-idolatry. Now, what should we take from this? We need to remember 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, we're going to be tempted in this life. 
But just because temptation arises doesn't mean we have to fail. God has promised there's always a way out. The problem is temptation distorts our perspective. Like Eve, we develop this tunnel vision that makes us focus on the false allure of sin and to forget the danger. How do we fight against this? Well, sometimes we've just got to flee from it. The Bible sometimes says things like flee sexual immorality, flee idolatry, flee from the love of money, flee youthful passions. Friends, sometimes we just got to flee, get out of there. But some situations you can't flee because sometimes we have to make a courageous stand for God's word. Or because life sometimes puts us in situations where we're going to encounter the same, temp the same temptation again and again because it's at our workplace or because it's at home. How do we resist when flight is not the answer? I think this passage suggests maybe a few things. First, maybe we should cultivate a practice of thankfulness in our lives. Temptation allures us because it makes us think that we lack something good that only sin can provide. But if we spend lots of time reflecting on the abundance and the goodness of what God has already given us, we'll know that we already have all that we need. And so when temptation beckons, perhaps we won't be taken in. Perhaps we'll see that sin is not going to better our lives because we will be more satisfied with what God has already given us. Second, we need to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan, and that's how Jesus responded. Each time he quoted the Scripture to expose the falsity of Satan's temptation. If that was Jesus' answer, that should be ours too, right? And that means, friends, we need to know God's Word. We need to immerse our minds in it. So when we encounter a tempting situation, our minds are able to point us to things from God's Word. That having hidden God's Word in our minds and hearts, we will see the situation aright and not sin against Him. Because God's Word will help us remember. Sin kills. It doesn't help. Obedience is better than its false pleasures. And friends, while we all need to know God's Word, particularly husbands, we need to consider the truth that God has charged us with leadership over our wives and children. We have a special responsibility to our families. We must maintain and guard them. And yet I fear that we gravitate to the same kinds of passivity that we see here in Adam because perhaps we really aren't interested in the things of God because we're more interested in our jobs or in the news or in our social scene or in leisure time. Maybe spiritual things aren't a priority for us. And we say, well, my wife will learn by reading some Christian books or there's a ladies Bible study at church, you know. And maybe our kids will learn from our wives or, hey, there's kids Sunday school at church, right? And so like Adam, we become a non-entity, an entirely passive observer to the spiritual condition of our homes, which actually required our involvement and leadership. Friend, is this hands-off approach wise? How did it work for Adam? Satan wants to destroy your family. And the number one tool in his arsenal is a passive husband and father who does not actively shepherd those in his charge. Be honest, men. Is this you? If so, are you going to continue following the pattern of foolish Adam? Or are you going to do something about it? What will you do to learn the scriptures? What will you do to teach those in your care? Friend, I implore you, do something. If you need help, if you need encouragement, if you need guidance, and this is something we talk about regularly at the men's events here at the church, come by and talk to other guys in the same situation you're in. Talk with the elders. We'd like to help you. Friend, don't let the tragedy of the garden be repeated in your home. But we come now to our second point, the consequences of humanity's rebellion. Adam and Eve have sinned. Now we see the results. First, shame. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The serpent said their eyes would be opened, and yes, now they do have a new perspective. But it's not a godlike perspective. Throughout the Old Testament, this word naked is often a synonym for shame, and that's the idea. They feel shame, which is an appropriate response to their guilt. And this leads to the second result. 
a terrified attempt to hide. Again, verse 7. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve try to cover their newfound shame by using the biggest available leaves to cover themselves. But that doesn't do the trick when they hear the approach of God. And this is one of the saddest parts of this entire passage. Verse 8 speaks of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the tense of the verb here indicates this was an ongoing action. This was God's practice. Each day in the early evening, he would come and spend time with Adam and Eve and enjoy their company. After all, that is what God intends for redeemed humanity, that we will be with him forever in a better garden. Well, now the early evening has come. And Adam and Eve hear the familiar sound of God's approach, but this time it doesn't make them happy. They have that sinking feeling that every Christian has after we sin. Oh no, I'm going to have to deal with this before God. But they don't want to deal with it. And so irrationally, they try to hide behind some trees, thinking this will help them escape from the God who cannot be escaped. This kind of terror is a common response to sin. I remember a few years ago chatting with a urologist, and he told me a big part of his business was people would come by who had, had, had committed sexual sins, and they were panicking. They didn't have any symptoms, but they were sure they had contracted an STD. Where does that fear come from? From an innate guilt. From an awareness that we should be punished, and a desire to head that off quickly. Friends, we know when we do wrong, and so we irrationally flee or hide. But we cannot escape accountability from God. And Adam and Eve discover that as we now see the third result, excuse-making. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. God begins an inquiry into what has happened. Not because God does not know, but because God is a fair judge. And he gives his creatures a fair opportunity to explain themselves. But look at the answers he gets. First, evasion. Where are you is met by Adam's confession that he's hiding, but Adam doesn't confess his sin. So God asks directly, did you eat? And Adam utterly fails to take responsibility. He who was made to be responsible for the earth now blames his wife. But really, Adam does something more sinister. He doesn't just blame the woman. He calls her the woman whom you gave to be with me. He's blaming God for God's bad taste in giving him a helper. What ignoble cowardice for the one who was created to be the noble vice-regent of the Almighty. Sin begets sin. And God questions Eve, and she points to the serpent, and God does not give the serpent a chance to talk. There's no need. Disorder has entered the world. The harmonious creation has become a place of shame, guilt, cowardice, and rebellion. And so now the fourth consequence, judgment. The judgments are individually tailored. Each one is judged because of his failure specifically. And it falls first on the serpent. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The serpent tempted Eve to eat. Now he's going to eat something. He was crafty and arrogant. Now he will eat dust. Often people think this is, involves the serpent losing legs that he might have had. We're not told that in the text. And I think that kind of misses the point. The issue here isn't that he lost his legs. The issue is he's going to eat dust. And this phrase uniformly throughout the Old Testament refers to humiliation. The judgment on the arrogant serpent and his offspring is humiliation. 
And we see how he'll be humiliated in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a very famous verse. What's it mean? On the most literalistic level, this prophesies that humans and snakes will not get along in the future. Humans will want to step on snakes' heads, and snakes will want to bite humans on the heel. But there's a lot more going on here than that. Because this serpent is not judged here for being a snake. He's the tempter. He's led humanity into sin. And so his offspring here should not be understood as snakes. His offspring are those who follow his lead, who join his rebellion against God. And these rebellious people, God says, will bitterly oppose the rest of humanity, that is, those who belong to God. And indeed, throughout the rest of Genesis, Moses shows us that humanity always falls in to just these two groups. Those who follow the snake or those who follow God. So we have murderous Cain and righteous Abel. Immoral Lot and faithful Abraham. Illegitimate Ishmael and true-born Isaac. Foolish Esau and Jacob who becomes Israel. And this becomes a major theme throughout the whole Bible. Titus 2 says God is saving a people for his own possession. And 1 John 3 says rebellious people are children of the devil. This hostility goes on until the end of history. But the key moment in this war is when the ultimate seed of the woman, Jesus, defeated Satan at the cross. And we're going to say more about that at the end. But here we see just the beginning of hope in this scene. Now God judges the woman. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Two penalties. First, women will suffer great pain in giving birth. A reminder that while she may give life, woman is not God, as Eve wanted to be. And second, we read that her desire will be contrary to her husband. So what's that mean? Well, we find almost the same language in chapter 4. When God warns Cain, sin has a desire contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The idea is sin wants to master Cain. Here the same language is used of Eve. She will desire or want to master her husband. And yet the text says he, the husband, shall rule over you. Up to this point, marriage has not been previously described with this kind of combative tone. Up to this point, the roles of husband and wife have been defined subtly and softly. Adam has authority in that he names Eve and Eve is his helper. But going forward, men will want to rule over their wives as domineering tyrants. And women will want to usurp the husband's legitimate rule over the home and exert mastery. Adam and Eve corrupted God's good institution of marriage by Eve assuming leadership and directing Adam into sin. And now that corruption will taint all future marriages. And perhaps this is a familiar scene to you because of what goes on in your home. Friends, that is a further result of this first sin. But finally, God judges Adam. Look at verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There are three penalties. First, creation is cursed. This is why natural disasters happen. Because cursed is the ground because of Adam. God made a good world that would serve mankind, but now nature operates with cold indifference to humanity. Now nature is disordered and violent. Second, the institution of work is corrupted. Just like marriage was corrupted, so is the other pre-fall institution of work. Adam was to have mastery over the animals of the world, but he failed. An animal mastered him. So now work is going to change. No longer can he just pluck fruit from the trees of the garden. Now he must work. He must farm the dry, harsh land. And that will be difficult 
It will be painful. He'll get thorns and uh, he'll be, be struck by the thorns that he works with the bushes. He'll hurt until he dies. And that's the last penalty here. Humanity must suffer death. Satan was a murderer from the beginning, and he has now brought death to man. As God now sentences humanity to return to the dust. Romans 5 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now the human body will deteriorate. Now it will die and decay. And friends, that judgment of physical death is an inheritance that has been transmitted to all of us. Adam is our ancestor, and we are descended from him after his fall. Genesis 5.3 says, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So no longer do we only bear the image of God. Now we also bear the image of fallen Adam. And his deteriorating condition has been passed to all of us. That's why we are liable to injury and sickness and death. And we'll see this in Genesis 5 as we read about Adam's descendants. And again and again in that chapter we will read, And he died, and he died, and he died, because death is our common lot. But as as bad as that is, there's a fifth and final aspect of judgment. Expulsion from the garden. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And it just stops there. Now here we see God's thoughts. And God notes in some ways Adam has become like him. Not in power or wisdom or goodness. But Adam has tried to do what only God can do. To decree right and wrong. And in so doing, Adam has acquired an experiential knowledge of evil. And now in his fallen condition, if Adam ate from the tree of life, what would happen? He would be immortalized as he was. Incapable of the death he deserved. Forever evil and beyond redemption. Adam would be a perpetually wretched and obscene reality. And God graciously won't allow that to take place, and so he acts. And to show the speed with which God acts, Moses records God's thoughts as though they cease in the middle of a sentence and they immediately now give way to action. Look at verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden to the outside world. Now this reflects a relational truth. As soon as they sinned, Adam and Eve experienced what theologians call spiritual death. They were alienated from God. That lovely face-to-face relationship they had ended. Instead, they were cast out of the garden with no ability to return. And with Adam having forfeited his office as the guardian of the garden... God now appoints a new guardian, an angel, a cherubim, who will secure the tree of life with a sword like lightning. Satan will incur no more, and neither will fallen man return. Now what should we see here? Friends, sin has terrible consequences. James 1.15 says, Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we mix our will with temptation, we sin. When we assent to evil. And when that happens, James says, it's like something is conceived. Not life, but sin that grows into death. Friends, sin kills. It destroys. First and most urgently, it threatens to destroy us forever. The Apostle Paul explains our natural condition in Ephesians 2. Verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin has made us spiritually dead, severed from relationship with God, helplessly and hopelessly mastered by sin. Dominated by the desires of the flesh as Eve was. Chasing what looks good and feels good and appeals to our pride. 
We listen to the lies of the world system, and so we unwittingly serve Satan like Adam and Eve did here. And the result, he says, is we are children of wrath. We're not only under the sentence of physical and spiritual death. We face the prospect of eternal death, of facing God's furious wrath forever, because we are sinners. Sin is utterly ruinous and destructive. I need to tell you, a lifestyle of unrepentant sin evidences that we don't really know Christ. Galatians 5.19 says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, uh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6 is the same kind of thing. Lifestyles of unrepentant sin culminate in hell, not heaven. But the consequences of sin are not all confined to the afterlife. Sin destroys in the here and now. It can cause terrible physical consequences in us. There's a reason Romans 1 talks about people receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Or 1 Corinthians 6 talks about sinning against your own body. Because some sins harm us physically, like sexual sin, or substance abuse, or self-harm. Sin also harms us spiritually. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens us to the truths of God and His Word. It makes us look at the world through the perspective of the serpent's lies and not from God's truth. It makes us increasingly feel like sin is safe and that obedience is missing out. Sin, in fact, inhibits our spiritual lives. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear. Unrepentant sin hinders our prayers from being answered. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, If our lives are filled with unrepentant sin, we cannot serve God effectively. And that makes sense. If we are consumed with self-indulgent sloth, are we going to be characterized by service? If we're filled with pride and envy, are we going to rejoice when good things happen for a brother or sister in the Lord? If we're filled with greed, are we going to be characterized by generosity? Sin harms us in all these ways. And sin harms those around us. Sometimes this is obvious. The person who commits adultery doesn't just harm himself, he harms his spouse and his children. She harms her extended friend, family and friends. The person who abuses drugs or alcohol doesn't just hurt himself, but those who care about him. But sometimes the communal effects of sin are less obvious. Sometimes one person sins and it has a ripple effect that is very far removed. This happens in families and churches especially. Where one sin takes place and then other people respond to that sin differently and it winds up breaking all kinds of relationships and causing people who are very far removed from it from saying, hey, maybe this Christianity thing is false. Maybe I don't believe in the local church anymore. One sin can domino and cascade into all sorts of unforeseen consequences. And beyond causing harm, sin can corrupt. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Because God's people become tainted and their mission is impaired when sin is unchecked among them. That's why Jesus and Paul command the practice of corporate discipline to address unrepentant sin in the church. Friends, sin is absolutely destructive. If there are sins in your life that you are complacent about that are in your mind right now as I speak, and you indulge in them saying, oh, I think this is safe, I, I warn you, these sins are destroying you and they're harming those around you they're harming your family and even your church the right response to sin is repent we've got to have a change of mind about whatever it is that we're mixed up in we've got to see it as a ruinous danger not as a treat or an escape we've got to confess it to god as the wicked vile thing it is First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we need to take steps to kill that sin in our lives. Figure out how to put yourself in temptations way less frequently. Immerse yourself in God's Word like we talked about earlier so you can have better ways to deal with temptation when it comes up. 
Spend time worshiping God for His holiness and His purity so that you would desire those things in yourself. Because Jesus died to win a victory over sin at the cross. Not a theoretical victory that will be actualized in the distant future. Friends, Jesus died to break the power of sin over us now. And it's a glorious truth, friends. We have been made new. We can fight our sin. We can defeat our sin. And yes, we won't do it perfectly. But friends, let us strive, right? And if right now I'm talking and you're aware of sins in your life that you need to deal with, do so. God is gracious, right? Do deal with it. Deal with it so God won't have to deal with it in you. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So this morning, let us allow God to examine us and where He shows us uncleanness in our lives, let us turn from it today so that we might not be ruined by sin and its calamitous effects. Because Romans 6 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what we see in our last point, which is God's provision of hope despite our rebellion. Today's passage is bleak, but Psalm 145 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Yes, God judged and cursed and expelled, but He also signaled on that dark day that He would redeem, bless, and restore. Look back at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We called her Eve up to this point, but this is really when she got the name. And her name is related to the verb meaning to live. And Adam gives her that name because he says she is the mother of all living. But at this point, she's not yet become a mother. So why does Adam say this? Because he has listened to God's judgment on her. And while that judgment was terrible, it also offered hope. God sentenced humanity for sin, but he did not end the human race. He said her pain in childbearing would increase, but she would bear children. And so here in verse 20, Adam accepts this truth in faith that God will graciously allow life to continue and he takes a step of faith in naming his wife Eve, that she'll be the mother of the human race. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame with fig leaves, something totally inadequate to the task, because every effort by fallen humanity to please God will always fail. But what we cannot do, God did. God provides man a better covering, made from animal skins. Now this would require the death of an animal. And so for the first time, blood is shed to cover humanity's guilt. Because Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Because the wages of sin is death. But God graciously allowed humanity to live by accepting a substitutionary sacrifice. Of course, this is the cornerstone of the Old Testament law. Animal sacrifices offered at the temple to cover sin. And here at the garden, the first temple, the first sacrifice is offered by God to satisfy God's own justice. And so their sin was covered. But the problem of physical and spiritual death remained. It would be the same for the Israelites. Animal sacrifices offered in faith could cover their sin, but those sacrifices could not fully deal with the problem of physical and spiritual death. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He is the promised offspring of the woman. He was virgin-born. He was without the sin nature transmitted by Adam to all of his descendants. He is truly human but not fallen. Humanity as it was meant to be. He lived a perfect sinless life. He was persecuted by what he called the children of the devil, those who would not believe in him. And through them, yes, the serpent wounded him, on the, and he died on the cross. But the serpent's wound was in actuality the greatest of all sacrifices, offered by God to satisfy God's own justice. A new and better sacrifice. Jesus died in our place for our sins, and by doing so, Jesus has inflicted a mighty death blow upon Satan. Colossians 2 says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. 
In Christ's death is redemption and victory for us. Forgiveness of all our sins. Not just covering them, but cleansing us thoroughly. Canceling all our debt before God. In Him is the end of spiritual death. He reconciles us to God and brings us into His family. In Him is the end of physical death. For in Him we have a promise of a resurrection like Jesus' own resurrection. In Him is the promise of eternal life and God's presence forever in a new and better garden. And as Jesus secures these things by dying for us, He disarms and utterly defeats the demonic realm that opposed Him, including Satan. He has triumphed over Satan in principle. And that will be fully actualized when He returns and sets all things right. And friends, he shares in that triumph with his people. Because Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So friends, today we need to know there is hope and victory in Jesus. Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. How do we come to the Father through him? Well, Jesus says in Mark 1, repent and believe the gospel. We've got to recognize who we were. Lost sinners headed for hell. Sinners by nature and choice. Because we have all done what was right in our own eyes. We have all tried to take from the fruit of the tree. We have all done great evil. Friends, we deserve all manner of death. But we are invited to turn off that terrible path and turn to Jesus. God who became man. Who is tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Who died for us and who is risen. Salvation is available if we trust in Him and His work alone to bring us to God and to forgive our sins. Friend, if you have never trusted Jesus today, I beg you, give Him your life and your sin, and you will find in Him limitless joy and hope and renewal and love and peace. And today, friend, if you do know Jesus, then recognize the awfulness of our sin. Where we need to repent, we, we need to do it, friends, today, now, while we sit here. Because sin kills let us renew our minds in God's word that we might effectively combat temptation. And let us rejoice because of the grace of God found in Jesus. So today we've seen the awfulness of our rebellion, its terrible consequences, and we've seen the glorious grace of God, which points us to Jesus. Ephesians 3 says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.